The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, November 26, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I spent my four-day weekend subscribing to Brexit podcast. That's me. That's just me. I thought it was a Romaniac. And then I find out that the new Trump amnesty program with the incoming Labrador government in Mexico, that's being called Remain in Mexico. So I don't know where I am with the Remain brand. Speaking of which, if you took all the actual facts and policies out of it and you just went sheerly by branding, on one hand, you got the Brexiteers, and on the other hand, the Remain side. It just seems a lot less swashbuckling than Brexiteers, doesn't it? So after about four days of imbibing news about the Irish border and Gibraltar and the customs union and the backstop, you don't know what these words mean, do you? That's because you don't listen to Brexit podcasts. What happened to me was I was pulled back into regular old American debates, especially on the Sunday shows. Now, We do, I believe, have a crisis in credible conservative commentators, and I will get to that in the spiel. But first, I want to focus on one conservative, Danielle Pletka of the American Enterprise Institute. She's frequently on the panel at Meet the Press, and she's taken lots of heat for her comments on global warming. I'm not a scientist. I I look at this as a citizen, and I see it so I understand it. On the other hand, we need to also recognize that we just had two of the coldest years, the biggest drop in global temperatures that we've had since the 1980s, the biggest in the last hundred years. We don't talk about that because it's not part of the agenda. Okay, so that's what she's getting the most negative attention for. But I do not think that was the worst thing she said on Meet the Press. In fact, I think she's getting so much negative attention because she started off with the phrase, I'm not a scientist. And in the context of no context, that triggered or alerted people that she was about to say something perhaps ignorant. And indeed, she did deliver. In other words, you don't have to go into that clip knowing a lot to know that she said some things that were wrong. But for this next clip, maybe it takes some basis in knowledge to adjudicate, as I did, this to be much worse than the global warming statement. Here we go. That's not quite factual. I'm afraid. I'm afraid Iran actually is the larger supporter of terrorism than Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia also, I hate being in the position of defending them, but Saudi Arabia has done more to turn itself around in terms of financial support for terrorism, in terms of support for individuals, in in terms of private support for terrorism than almost any country. Done more to turn itself around in support of terrorism. Like, terrorism is some negative trend line, a social ill like teen pregnancy or smoking rates. Like, you're going to have posters up in elementary schools or a fun anti-terrorism mascot to convince the kids or indeed members of the royal family not to fund terrorism on the side. But I guess when you think about it, 15 of the 19 9-11 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. So if you cut that down to just like seven of the 19 mass murderers, yeah, you've cut the problem in half. Gold star and rosewater bath for you. Now, the unvarnished truth is that, yeah, from the terrible, absolute total blind eye to terrorism that the Saudis used to have to today, there has been a bit of reform But let us not pat the Saudis on the back. The AP still reports that Saudi Arabia is in leagues with Al-Qaeda affiliates in Yemen. 
because they have a common enemy and so much money laundering goes on in Saudi Arabia, depending on the internal politics of Saudi Arabia. Sometimes this funding of terrorism is allowed to happen and other times it's cracked down upon. It just seemed odd to me that when I heard her say it, it seemed odd that a U.S. commentator would offer such a Panglossian take on Saudi Arabia's progress. And I immediately wondered, I did, I swear, I said to myself, I wonder if she is on the payroll, has been paid by the Saudis, or if she's related to anyone who is. Turns out, that is the case. Daniel Plekka's husband is Stephen Rademacher, a former Bush administration official, who, until the demise of the Podesta group, worked for that lobbying firm slash law firm. The Podesta group banked millions of dollars lobbying for the Saudis. Now Rademacher works for the firm of Covington and Burling, which also consults for and advises the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Rademacher also directly, by the way, directly lobbies for mineral extractors, BP and Rio Tinto, which perhaps you could argue colors his wife's opinion on the subject of global warming, though I was reading through Rio Tinto's stances on the issues, and they are more aggressively against climate change than Danielle Pletka is. I will quote some Rio Tinto literature. They say there is overwhelming scientific consensus that climate change is caused by human activity and poses a significant threat to our health, economy, and environment. Rio Tinto also supports the Paris Agreement. I do not believe that Danielle Pletka does. Now, gotta say, the husband is not the wife. I also know that just because the kingdom of Saudi Arabia is indirectly enriching the companies that the Pletka Rademacher family call employers does not make Danielle Pletka tainted or a liar or biased. But what it does is it calls for disclosure. And I think it is significant that my immediate thought was to wonder if her financial interests and the Saudis' financial interests were aligned. And they are. She should not be allowed to opine on NBC without the Meet the Press audience knowing as much. On the show today, I speak about this issue in total, way beyond a specific incident of embracing the Saudis. I will help all of media by assessing the crisis in credible conservative commentators. But first, the estimable Dave Weigel has covered more elections this cycle than it seems is humanly possible. Here, Here's the key to that. Never sleep and don't go home. And then you too could lay claim to that title. We now have a wide-ranging talk between me and Dave, but I want to draw specific attention to our discussion of why conservative groups fight tooth and nail for every individual race, but seem to have just thrown up their hands and not contested amendments that would enfranchise ex-felons. It's all interesting, but that I thought was particularly interesting, and that's up next. David Weigel is uh, an American journalist who works for the Washington Post covering politics. He writes the trailer newsletter, and normally I give a much better, bigger, grander introduction, but I just want to talk about everything now that we're you know, a couple weeks from the election with the guy who I think has covered the most campaigns of anyone these last couple years, Dave Weigel. Right, Hello, so. how I are hope, you? I, yeah. hope, I hope I didn't do all this just to get beat by somebody who works for Reuters or something. Yeah. No, I... I <laughs> And look at this incoming list of members, and I've talked to, I think, most most of the people who are coming into Congress. So, yeah. Who surprised you most? Some of the margin surprised me. There are some races where I thought they'd be squeakers, and Democrats kind of blew it out. I, I thought that um, in Minnesota, they'd hold on to the first district because the Republicans had a bad candidate, Democrats had a good one. But uh, the the way that kind of the rural 
urban suburban divides from 2016 crack down even harder this this cycle. I was surprised the extent of that. I thought there might be a little bit more flexibility and there just wasn't. I want to ask you about, uh, I don't want to beat up on a cartoon of the media narrative, Mm -hmm. but I do think that after the 2016 election, there was the sense, and Chuck Todd would say it, and he'd have Mm -hmm. Mike Rowe on his show, we're just forgetting the everyman. We're forgetting that out-of-work machinist from Indiana who wears a trucker hat. And this time around, it's like, oh, forget that guy. We need to talk to the woman from Bucks County who has a yoga mat. Is it is it that simple that there's always one archetype of person that we're forgetting? And if the media would only cover that person, we'd figure out what's going on in America. Well, that's really dear to my heart, because one of my gripes, I think, lost me some friends (laughs) over the last two years. is I just thought, one, the press did a pretty good job, actually, of explaining the Trump phenomenon in 2016, uh, going to places where he was very popular uh, explaining the emotional issues people had to get over uh, to vote for him. And I think we did a good job. And then there's this huge over- overcorrection in 2017 where everyone was going back to deep red areas to see if they still liked Trump. And it turned out they still liked him. And they missed this story where, uh, look, the guy has been an unpopular president, especially with, uh, now this has been covered now, with people with college degrees of any kind, any kind of college education, uh, people who would have been moderate Republicans, forget 10 years ago, like three years ago. Uh, he has lost them. Uh, he's lost non-white voters to an astounding degree. Uh, I think Asian American voters broke about as Democratic a little bit more than Hispanic voters, and he uh, turned out more Hispanic voters. So, right. uh, and one thing I was proud of uh, my own reporting at the end of the campaign was I spent the final couple weeks in states that end up going very blue. So I was in New Mexico, Colorado, Michigan, and, and New Jersey uh, right during the caravan fight, and a, a theme I kept hearing was. Just people were really irritated with the president for pretending the caravan was a threat when they knew it wasn't. So forget Trump. I mean, this is the a bigger margin for Democrats in this House race than any Republicans had since uh, George H.W. Bush beat Mike Dukakis. Like, this is a, a pretty big mandate. And I don't think that was really covered. There was this constant search for the magical Trump voter who was going to turn out and, and change things around. Uh, it turns out they, they exist in very red states. Uh, he's better at motivating that base than George W. Bush was. But that is not most of the country. You know, it is possible that he's actually a terrible political operative and he maybe gets one or two things right. Like he can draw a big rally in a state that likes him a lot anyway. Yeah. But other than that, it is possible that all his theories are wrong and will be wrong. We just need an election to prove it. Yeah. And, and this was kind of a piercing of the glamour uh, for, for Trump too, because really Democrats did not expect to lose in 2016. You mean the glamour, like how a vampire confuses us glamour? That sort of glamour? That kind of glamour. The magic kind of doesn't actually exist. But for my purposes, right. let's say it does. And there's this idea that uh, from Democrats and Republicans that, oh, maybe this guy's figured out something that just is going to change the way politics works. And, and nope, it turns out not. Just, just uh, And that's the thing I found even as I talked to Democrats who might run for president in 2020. Just a lot of fear is gone. Um the same way it was for, but Republicans were are just more confident by nature. They were not afraid of Obama like ten minutes after he won. They decided this is a fluke and we're going to beat him next time. And it took it took Democrats two years in an election to get there. Yeah, what do you make of the fact that all these kind of democratic or liberal or left of whatever um, uh, policy ideas get passed by ballot measure and the expansion of Medicare and even in even in red yeah. states, it seems like they like democratic policies, but they don't like the label Democrats or maybe the style of Democrats. Uh, what, what's what's your read on that? 
I mean, that's totally true. That's that's pretty logical too. I mean, I, we've seen this in some blue states where if you if you word it the right way, you can pass a a concert, you, know, you can pass an anti-tax measure, but they'd never vote for a anti-tax Republican candidate. The Florida voter restoration amendment that passage. The question is whether Republicans try to slow it down, although mm-hmm. uh, because Florida changed the constitution to allow uh, nonviolent felons to get registered to vote more easily. That benefits Democrats. It's an idea that Democrats endorsed and Republicans didn't. But the campaign was uh, very carefully drawn so that Democrats uh, did not run as the felon restoration party. Uh, Republican groups didn't spend against it. And even some Democrats who came to the state who supported it. I mean, the, the organizer of this told me they, they specifically asked when Bernie Sanders came to Florida, even though he supported the ballot measure, don't talk about it in Florida. Yeah. They were acknowledging, okay, the Democratic Party here is not that popular. <laughs> so we do not want to hitch our wagon to this more popular thing because we need it to pass. Uh, that, I think that that explains it compl- the, perfectly, that, that some of these ideas, when they're, when they're not yoked to a party, you have to think, well, I don't like... I like this idea, but if I vote for Democrats, they're going to kill all the babies and let all, you know, uh, let all the MS-13 members into my house. Uh, if you separate it from that, now they're still pretty popular. So is, by the way, now that they passed it, it's Democrats aren't popular in Florida, but will they be? Are we yeah, sure it's I mean, a red state now? Yeah, their calculation was that if that law was, that, was not in, in effect, um, I mean, they, the last few statewide, they've lost very narrowly. Uh, this one, they, they, you will, there is no doubt among Democrats had this been in place for the last couple of years, they would have had enough voters to win the Senate race, at least probably the governor's race too. Um, if that's implemented and they spend money to register people, which they will, I mean, this is George Soros's groups, uh, Chomp Steyer's groups, the ones that invested in this all wanted, all were ready to go and register people as soon as this happened. Um, so I think you're going to see that. And, and the question will be a Florida, if, if a Donald Trump reelection in a Florida post uh, his mishandling of Hurricane Maria post felon restoration, that's probably three to four points more Democratic, which uh, would would have would have lost in the election in, in 2016. Yeah, and that's what's amazing to me. So let's talk about the uh, the voting wars for a second. But Republicans do all these things to I, I can say suppress the vote. I'll say that. Um, yeah. Little things at the margins, and it seems like some of them are a pretty tough slog. Like you got to fight it out in court, and if it's exposed, uh, it will have the counter effect of sometimes there's been the demonstrated effect of uh, the people who are. Supposed Supposed to be suppressed, react by voting in greater numbers. But why wouldn't they come out against this uh, felon enfranchisement act? It seems to me easier to villainize felons and say, we don't want them deciding on your child's future than it is to keep having these court fights that they don't usually win on. No, that's a very good, very good point. And it's a real mystery to the organizers who I talked to after the election, why it never happened. Huh. They were bracing. I mean, the ACLU was behind this and they were bracing the whole time. No, I know the Koch brothers. I know the Koch yeah. brothers are for it, but they're just one group as no matter how much of a boogeyman we make them. No, I think this is a thing that people do in a, in a ballot initiative states. They often kind of convince people to move their money elsewhere. And in Florida, it was, okay, you don't like this. Uh, Republican donors, you can focus on the governor's race instead of, you know, and fill up the super PAC there instead of trying to beat this thing. Because the thing pulled pretty popular the whole time. Um, and if you... You know, there, it's a bit of a mutually assured destruction. If you spend against this, good for you. You're going against the Koch brothers, and they're going to put another 20 million into it. Uh, you can do that in a couple of states. It's very tricky. Now, again, something that doesn't really help you in a presidential race. 
Well, let's go to Maine for a second, which is one of the two states, the other being Vermont, and yeah. really a state where not only do they have felon enfranchisement, while you're in jail, you can vote, which is nice. And they have this new voting procedure, ranked choice voting, which I, as somewhat of an elections geek, think is interesting. How did it affect things? And do you think it's a good idea? I think it generally is, because uh, one of my hobby horses, I actually think third parties under the system we have don't make a lot of sense. There's the occasional situation where you can have somebody break out, uh, but if, if it's a first-past-the-post system, most of the time, 99% of the time, you're just getting blamed for throwing the election some way or another, right? Yep. What if instead we have elections and people just, after they vote for their top choice, put a number two next to the person who's their second choice and number three next to the person who's their third choice, and we just count them later? I have not seen the downside to this, honestly. I mean, the... The effect of it in Maine, because it only works in federal races, is uh, there was a race for the second district, mostly rural. It used to be used to be more Democratic, now about 50-50. And there were two liberal third-party candidates. Uh, most people who voted for those third-party candidates chose the Democrat as, as their as their second preference. And so Jared Golden is going to be a congressman because he got maybe a netted like 3,000 votes. Uh, he, he flipped from a very narrow loss to a very narrow win where we found out who most people prefer, and it was him. Yeah. I, I, when you say you don't see the downside, I agree with that for almost all the proposed election reforms, like expanding voting seems to be good, especially in era where, you know, Cook County isn't controlled by the daily machine and they're no longer stuffing ballot boxes. I mean, if voter fraud were a real thing, I really would be concerned. But since it's not, you know, let's go motor voter, let's go mail-in voting, let's go almost, I can think of almost everything that people propose as a way to increase the franchise. I'm for, what about you? Do you have any exceptions? I'm thinking of one thing where, I don't know if this is an increased franchise thing, but they, there's a movement to do away with party line voting where you click one button yeah. and vote for everyone in the party. I think that that should be done away with, so I don't know if that puts me as progressive or regressive. But anyway, do you have any, do you, do you have any truck with any of the expansion of voting ideas? Uh, the, the last one I don't mind just because I've lived in places like Illinois where you, there's like 5,000 judges on the ballot. Yeah. And, uh, if, and you, you, if, you don't if want you carpal tunnel. Think, <laughs> if you generally think you want to vote for more liberal judges or more conservative judges, that's probably good. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, uh, if, you, if you have looked at elections around the world, uh, we de- de- generally don't see other democracies or even other kind of third world countries report on the four-hour lines uh, for voting. So I think this is a a fight the Democrats have picked up that if they're smart, they can kind of do for this what Republicans did for term limits, right? Which was, hey, aren't you tired of this thing that doesn't work? We're going to replace with something that works. The the utility of making it really hard to vote, no one can make a good case for it, apart from sounding like, you know, one of those heavy-breathing YouTube guys who talks about the founders. Oh, the founders didn't want this. Yeah, the founders didn't (laughs) want women or black people or people who didn't own plantations to vote. Good for, good for you. Good point. Things are different. Yeah. Uh, what is your actual case for people who disagree with me uh, shouldn't vote or people who have less or people who might vote the wrong way shouldn't vote? Like, no, just let lay it out. Like uh, Democrats, I think it's, it's led by Stacey Abrams, have been very bold in saying that's rigging, that's unfair, that's illegitimate. In the past, you know, they've said, well, that's gross, but we don't want to look like sore losers. And I think I've, they've gotten to the point where they, they're saying now, we don't care if somebody calls us a sore loser. It is better that we have this argument out and maybe maybe we win it. Right. Um, you, they kind of need to have this out in public, too, because if there are lawsuits, if Democrats just kind of go along with the results of every election, you're le- you end up with less to say in court about why these things need to be overturned. Right. 
it, either you can because you that perverts everything. I mean, the, the whole gerrymandering discussion. You look at a different country, a different set of priorities. If you decide, hey, people who live in the cities, they should count less because reasons. Yeah. Um, and that goes double if you're like, well, yeah, if you if you're a rural voter in Georgia, you should be able to vote in 10 minutes. And if you live in the suburbs, sorry, you have a four hour line. Um, yeah. Yeah. People like people like to vote. People don't like to wait in line. Even People, people, hate would, lines. Rather, people would rather not wait in line, even if it means that someone who will vote for the opposite candidate gets to not wait in line. That's what people care about. I if think they mostly take that yeah. trade off. People yeah. don't even want to go to like a store anymore. <laughs> like, why would they want to? Why would they not say I'm for the let's not wait in line reform? Yeah. Um, should I do you if I said any state and the number of the seat, do you always know who that is and where that seat is? Do you know all 435 house seats? Uh, Texas, California, get a little weird, especially because they their numbers don't always match up. But uh, but most of them, most of them, I think I could. Should I be amazed by that? Or is it like, you know, I know college basketball. And if you name the college basketball team, I could tell you probably their nickname and where they are. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's it's basically most people use this part of their brain to memorize sports. I'm really interested in movies. I'm interested in politics and music. And so I know stuff. I know like what track of an album, what year the album came out. If I hear a song, I know about the districts. I know sometimes about the wind margins. If I, if I paid attention, it, it, I'm not sure if I would. If people should envy that skill, but it is one I've developed over time. Who was the New York State congressman who was in uh, the band named? Oh, do you know who I'm talking John about? John Hall. John Hall. He was in Orleans. Okay, John Hall in Orleans. I want to give you the combination. So John Hall was in a band Orleans. What was his district, and what was Orleans' highest charting song? Well, the song was uh, still the one. Uh, you know still having fun and you're yeah. still the one yeah i think if they they maybe had two songs i'm not i'm not sure but that was the one that was a hit the district was the 19th which is now going to be held by antonio delgado who this is an easy mnemonic because delgado was attacked by republicans to the tune like 10 million dollars because he once recorded a rap album uh, which you can hear on spotify his rap name is ad the voice <laughs> yes uh and he has a song called Draped in Flags that I played very loud at a party last weekend <laughs> about the Iraq war. But anyway, easy to remember, the 19th District, when Democrats win it, they win it yeah. with uh, exclusively mediocre musicians. Yeah. This is why Zephyr Teachout didn't win when she ran. She never cut that LP. She was not wasting even a her slam time. Poetry album. No, not, even, not even a spoken word, nothing. Yeah. David Weigel writes and reports the trailer newsletter for The Washington Post, which if you're not subscribing to it, you don't know everything you can about elections. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. And now the spiel. So let me tell you about one of my recent appearances on MSNBC. MSNBC convincing us we're not the insane ones since 2015. So I was on a panel of five learned people, well, four learned people and me, and we were asked about the revelation that Donald Trump looked into prosecuting James Comey and Hillary Clinton. They went around the horn. First up was Elliot Williams, former deputy attorney general. He said this. This is the behavior of, of people who don't believe in the rule of law. Next up was white-collar lawyer Jeff Jacobovitz. He compared Trump to Nixon. Then the MSNBC reporter at the White House said this. The thing I will note about this memo, if there is actually something in writing, then that's something that is subpoena that the House Democrats can subpoena. And then Ron and Sana weighed in with this. 
Look, I, I do think it, it points to this Nixonian tendency, this this enemies list, a, it, not just a political problem, but indeed a legal problem ultimately for this president. If if he were in some other capacity acting on this, this is something that Maggie Haberman. So it came to me. I didn't disagree with anything anyone said. The opinions range from Trump was being flagrantly abusive to unconscionably transgressive. But I was just picturing the home viewer. And maybe what the viewer wants is that kind of liberal comfort food. Trump's terrible. Uh, You can't believe what he's doing. His worst instincts are his true instincts, all that. And that was presented. And then I, as 20% of the panel, was asked for my opinion. So I could have piled on, but I did think that it's sometimes useful for a discussion to not have all sides or both sides, but some other way of looking at an issue other than the ways you've been hearing. And often what will happen in that case is the fourth guy, the fifth guy, all they could do is magnify the outrage as opposed to add some, I don't know, subtle shading of a different way to look at it. So what I said was, look, Maybe the president, who's not a lawyer, talked to his lawyer, who is a lawyer, and that lawyer said, Mr. President, that's a terrible idea. And the president accepted his lawyer's advice. We shall not prosecute Comey and Clinton. Of course, in the case of Trump, accepting advice means fuming and throwing things and shotgunning a Diet Coke and grousing about NFL ratings. But it was a bad idea that was set aside on the advice of legal counsel, who is now clearly the source for the story about how brave a legal counsel he was. My point is not specific. I don't even think that that is the best way to look at that issue. I just wanted, as a member of the media, on a panel, talking to the public, I just wanted some version of the argument besides three or four or five people agreeing with each other. I know in this age of the platonic ideal of the political podcast is a bunch of people agreeing with each other. It's not a popular thought. But I still, when I look at the news, when I imbibe the news, I want a fuller picture than he's wrong, he's very wrong, he's horribly wrong, he's the wrongest ever. So sometimes the networks do this. They somehow contradict everything we know about sound waves and create an echo chamber where it gets louder and louder. But other times they go the other direction and they contract with a conservative and that conservative says terrible, terrible things, things that make you stupider for having heard it. Let us go now to CNN where their in-house conservative Rick Santorum was asked to opine about the government's climate change study. Look, if there was no climate change, we'd have a lot of scientists looking for work. Uh, the reality is that that a lot of these scientists are driven by the money that they receive. And of course, they don't receive money from corporations and Exxon and the like. Why? Because they're not allowed to because it's tainted. But they can receive it from people who have who support their agenda. And that's what and, and that, I believe, is what's really going on here. I, no one doubts that the climate is changing. No one doubts that. The question is, how much does man contribute? Number one. And number two, what can man do to actually change it? And those are the two big issues. He is right. These government scientists do receive money from people who support their agenda, namely the citizens of America who pay their taxes and want accurate science. So Santorum's right and yet overall laughably wrong. Same general category. The Wall Street Journal's Jason Riley was on This Week this week offering this weak argument about voter suppression. This has been in the Democratic playbook for decades, paint the Republican candidate as racist. We saw it in this race. We saw it in Georgia. There's voter suppression. We see it in Florida. They're trying to steal the, the election. He's right. 
it is in the playbook to call out an injustice when that injustice is actually occurring, just as it was in Georgia. Maybe Jason Riley hates playbooks, the idea of playbooks in general. When the Patriots win the Super Bowl, maybe Jason Riley is like, oh, but those plays came out of the playbook. Executing plays with purpose and efficiency, that's not right. He is wrong about Florida. No one tried to steal an election before anyone on the This Week panel can say, hey, that is an inaccurate claim. He wowed the panel with this one. I I think that we've seen this come out of Democrats before, the Republicans. And I don't think SB is playing it down. I think he's playing it up. I think he saw an opening here. Um, and, And I'd also say I think there's a difference between hanging and lynching. And no one seems to be making that distinction. Aha, let us make the distinction now. All lynchings are hangings, but not all hangings are lynching. That is a truly transformative argument. It totally reshapes my opinion on the advisability of the white 59-year-old lady from Mississippi talking about public hangings. By the way, Mississippi phased out hanging as a means of execution in 1940. We have the stats from 1922 to 1940. The state did hang 77 convicts. 65 of those 77, not lynched, hanged, they were black, so it wasn't racist, right? We have, we have the total statistics of the history of Mississippi legal execution. From 1818 through 2004, Mississippi executed 794 people. Of those 794, 639 were black men, good for 80%. And Jason Riley is right. No one is talking about how progressive those non-lynching but actual hanging and execution statistics are. It would really be a great thing for Cindy Hyde-Smith if everyone were talking about that, huh? Jason Riley is consistently a horrible arguer. He is African-American. He has the imprimatur of the Wall Street Journal editorial page behind him, but he rarely makes compelling arguments that appeal to the intellect as opposed to arguments that rely on his, oh, so unusual status as a black man who happens to hate Democrats. Then you have Rick Santorum, who we discussed. I would classify him as a boob in general. And then we have Danielle Pletka, who we talked about in the beginning of the show. She is consistently the Meet the Press guest who offers the least. Beyond the climate change dismissal and the Saudi coddling this week, there was the time she offered this analysis of the Me Too movement. And if that means that someone's going to harass them, they should stand up and call them out. This whole, uh, me too, I want to get on the gravy train. Harvey Weinstein looked at me meanly too, but I didn't have the guts, Gwyneth Paltrow, to stand up and do anything about it. I'm not really into that. Gwyneth Paltrow's pusillanimity aside, that analysis really adds nothing. So why? The question is why? Why are the worst guests in these group discussions on network discussion shows, why are they the conservative guests? Someone will say, it's because conservatives have the worst arguments. I do not believe that. The quality of an argument isn't whether you agree with the argument, it's how well it presents the facts. Raihan Salam blows me away with his argumentation. On the same Meet the Press show that Danielle Pletka offered little, Elise Jordan, former Condoleezza Rice speechwriter and Rand Paul aide, was terrific. I think the show's book, Substandard Guests, out of a consideration other than who has the best rhetorical skill. Maybe it's a phenomenon where if you don't inherently believe the argument, you're not even good at evaluating what makes a good argument. I don't know. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe the shows are impressed by the fact that Danielle Pletka speaks smoothly. Rick Santorum speaks smoothly. They don't stutter. That's all we need. Hey, we check the box conservative argument. We check the box. They're not drooling or falling all over themselves. We're fine. 
In Rick Santorum's case, I think his value add to CNN is that he's willing to take the pro-Trump side of every argument, and that allows an argument to be had all the time. Good for ratings. I really don't know what's going on, why he's still employed. Maybe conservatives, maybe even the intellectually hefty ones, just say no to NBC or ABC or CNN. I doubt that's true. I'm sure if you're a conservative listening to my arguments about the crisis of credible conservatives on the TV news, I'm sure if you're a conservative, you're saying that these mainstream liberal networks are consciously seeking out bad arguers. You know, how Alan Combs had that job over at Fox for all those years. I don't think that's true either. I do believe that a better debate could possibly lead to greater understanding overall. But even if you disagree with me on that, you probably will agree that a really good debate from the other side will sharpen the arguments on your own side. And it does seem to me that that quality of arguments, the sharpness, seems to be more and more rare every day. And that's it for today's show. The GIST introduced ranked choice voting for producers. Pierre Bienname got the most first place votes, but Daniel Schrader's combination of second and third place votes actually won him the day since TJ Raphael was also on the ticket running from the senior producer for Slate Podcast Party. The gist, I am hereby disclosing that neither I nor any of my relatives are on the payrolls of the Saudis or any extractive industries. But there is this Peruvian chicken place that opened up across the street and I promise to trade publicity for poultry. So that's the full disclosure, as I say, um Peru da Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.